Welcome back to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, the new podcast from UCL. My name's Vivian Parry. I'm a writer and broadcaster and a UCL alumna. And each week I'll be talking to UCL researchers and staff about coronavirus. In each episode of this podcast, we'll be considering a different perspective of the coronavirus pandemic and learning from the wide range of disciplines here at UCL. Last week, we took a look at coronavirus in intensive care. For this week's episode, we'll be a bit closer to home as we talk to Professors Andrew Hayward and Dr Eleni Nastuli about social distancing and current efforts to monitor the spread of the virus. So let me first introduce our guests. Professor Andrew Hayward, who's Director of the UCL Institute of Epidemiology and Healthcare and UCL Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Inclusion Health. He's leading on Virus Watch, a new multi-million pound research effort to measure the spread of coronavirus within communities and how this spread is affected by social distancing. Dr. Eleni Nastuli is Assistant Professor at the Institute of Child Health and Clinical Lead of the Department of Clinical Virology at UCLH. Dr. Nastuli is leading on SAFER, Evaluation to Inform Response Study, and that's going to involve monitoring the behaviour of frontline staff to identify their risk of infection and determine how to reduce this. So let's start with you, Andrew. First of all, Andrew, tell me, how do we know how many people have been infected by coronavirus? I would say the answer at the moment is we, is we don't. Um, we have some estimates that are based, for example, on uh, if, if, for example, we make assumptions about what the case fatality rate is uh, in COVID, and then we think about the number of deaths and multiply backwards, we come up with some calculations. But of course, that's already dependent on knowing what that case fatality rate is, which we don't have good measures of. I think really the only way of knowing is to directly measure it. And I think there's two ways of doing that. One is to go out into community settings and follow people up and get them to report any time they have an illness and to test them uh, any time they have an illness that might be COVID to see what the incidence, so how common new cases are. The other way of, of measuring it is through these antibody tests that you'll you'll likely have heard about, which really uh, are designed to measure whether or not um, you've been exposed to coronavirus, had an infection and developed antibodies to that infection. And so and if we test the public, we can potentially measure that. So you've got a have I got it test, which is based on looking for the virus's uh, genomic material. And you've got a have I had it test, which is looking for antibodies. But of course, what we're thinking of with coronavirus is that there are lots of people who don't have perhaps any symptoms at all, who don't know that they've got it or had it. So what are we doing about them? I think that's absolutely right. So, And, and I mean, I think those really divide into two groups. One is where you're thinking about people who just have a really mild illness um, that they wouldn't normally think anything of you know like that's you know similar to a common cold or or that sort of thing or maybe just feeling a bit rough one day 
Quite possibly, yes. And then, and then you you probably got another group who are who are not developing any symptoms at all, like you say. And and we really don't know the relative sizes of these of these infections. And and I think that's that's a lot of what Virus Watch is really about, trying to measure um, those different sizes of them. The the first one measuring the you know how many people are ill, but that we didn't know about is sort of more straightforward, if you like, than measuring how many people have been infected but never had any symptoms. But we're certainly seeing um, quite a lot of evidence from a number of settings that, particularly in outbreak settings in institutions, that that within those settings you can get quite a lot of people who appear not to have any symptoms uh, but are still infected with COVID. And actually, how many people have had it has enormous implications for the measures that we take, but also things like the case fatality ratio. Because if you think about the number of people dying and you're thinking only, uh, I mean, let's say 100 people get it uh, and you know they've got it and one person uh, dies, then that's one sort of case fatality ratio. But if actually you know that it, it, when your your figures reveal or testing reveals that a thousand people have actually had it and only one person uh, has died, that has dramatically altered that case fatality ratio. Indeed. And I think we need to be very careful when we're talking about case fatality ratios about what we're actually talking about. You know, are, are we talking about the the number of deaths divided by the number of infections, whether those be symptomatic or asymptomatic infections? Are we talking about the number of deaths divided about by the number of symptomatic infections? Are we talking about it divided by the number of laboratory confirmed infections? And you'll come up with completely orders of magnitude different estimates depending on which one of those you choose. And I think that does I mean, it has implications both for, you know, how we communicate about the the virus uh, and the consequences of getting infected. I think most people greatly overestimate their risk of becoming very, very ill. I think it's about 30% of people think that they'll get it, don't they? Well, I mean, I think it's maybe not so much the issue of whether people will get it or not, but the issue of how ill people think they will get if they get it. And the fact is that for the great majority of us, it will be a relatively mild illness or possibly, uh, and we don't know the size of this yet, possibly also an illness, uh, no illness at all. And so that that sort of, if you like, potentially changes one's perspective on personal risk. Um, but then again, we still know that in some groups, particularly the elderly and those with chronic illness, then the risk of any infection turning into a much, much more severe uh, situation is is very, very much higher. So how is Virus Watch going to operate? How is it going to give you this crucial information? So the way that we're working in Virus Watch is really to try and recruit a very representative um, group of the population from across the country. We're doing this through um, postal recruitment of more or less a randomly selected sample across the country to be representative. Uh, and we'll be inviting them 
first of all, to uh, sign up to an, an online survey, which will allow us to collect a lot of background data about the, the participants themselves and the other people within their household. So that will include, you know, their medical history and, and a lot of social factors as well, what sort of work they do, these sorts of things. And then everybody will be uh, asked to record all of their symptoms that they think might be related to COVID as we go forward following people up over a year and we'll be contacting them on a weekly basis to ask them to record those onto uh, our online survey. Also for a subgroup of those participants of around 10,000 we'll also be asking them to submit nose and throat swabs taken during the early part of any illness um, so that we can uh, look for the virus in those nose and throat swabs. And there's an issue there with the nose and throat swabs, isn't there? Because taking your own throat swab is a bit like trying to poke yourself in the eye with, a, with something. It, it, your, your whole reflexes are set up to avoid you doing such a thing to yourself. And so how confident can you be that people are taking their swabs in the right way? Well, we do. Um, we will be going into... Uh, quite a lot of detail and providing video instructions, for example, about how to do this. We've got some research from within influenza that suggests that this is not a bad way of identifying viruses compared to healthcare worker taking samples. But yes, you're right, we will lose a, a, a little bit of uh, accuracy in our tests. This is also why we're, we're wanting to take them both from the nose and from the throat. So, yes, it's one of the things that we will need to consider within it. So, Andrew, the implications of this research are profound because if the virus is much more widespread and far more people have been infected uh, than we think, then that has implications for lockdown, for social distancing and for many other aspects of our life post-COVID. I think that's right. I mean, a, a a critical part of the argument about how long this is going to go on for, how restrictive we need to be, is is really about how many of us have already had this and how many are immune. And we we think, uh, from the best of our understanding so far, that maybe that in uh, say a city like London that's been severely affected that that maybe we might be up to, say, 10%, possibly 15% of people. But we, but this is very much a guess at the moment. We need to measure this. Whereas if we're, if we're wrong on that, which we could be because we haven't measured it, there may be that many more people uh, have been infected. And that, that's something we need to know very quickly. Because what would it mean if you did indeed discover that many more people had been infected in terms of the kind of measures that we're taking at the moment? I think it would, in my mind, it would be, that would be a a good thing because it would indicate that we're further through this crisis than we might otherwise have thought. I think one of the key concerns is that even though we've seen all of these very high levels of deaths over recent weeks, that we still have a long way to go in terms of the proportion of the population that are susceptible to 
COVID. And of course, if a much higher proportion of people have been infected than we think, then it may, but not necessarily, it may follow that a much higher proportion are now immune than we think. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus that you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk. And now we've been joined by our other guest today, Dr. Eleni Nastuli. So, Eleni, of course, the people on the front line, they are really very vulnerable indeed. What's the picture? Is that the case? And how are we going to find out? Thank you. And thank you for inviting me in the webcast. So, yes, this is a concern. Um, We don't, and actually this is one of our aims with our study, to clarify what that risk actually is. And this is something we will measure. And I'm very happy to say that we will have preliminary results, hopefully next week or beginning of uh, the week after. And yes, the concern is that they are potentially highly exposed in terms of their frequency of the exposure and the virus load, if you like, or the virus inoculum, as we, uh, the term we use, they have been exposed to. And we actually want to know much better about that and how uh, much the level of the protective equipment that we use in the hospital environment actually protects healthcare workers. And how does this compare to the community rates of infection? Uh, I think this is absolutely what we want to explore and know more about. But yes, the concern obviously is that. And I must say that um, I'm taking very seriously the concern and the anxiety that frontline healthcare workers have at this stage. I mean, we've seen some initial research, but which has been quite reassuring that people in backroom roles in the NHS have not uh, dissimilar rates of infection to people on frontline roles. And just tell me a bit more about that viral load, because we, we hear a lot about that. I guess that people who are the most exposed to the highest amount of virus, perhaps if you're trying to put in a breathing tube for a patient or something like that, are the ones who are most likely to pick it up. Or isn't that the case? I, I, my guess, if you like, uh, and uh, educated guess, if you like, is that um, um, but we, it remains to be seen in frontline and highly exposed healthcare workers is that actually because of the use of uh, protective equipment um, and the precautions we all take in these uh, highly exposed um, uh, areas is actually, I expect it to be similar, if you like, and that we are actually with the, with the measures that we're taking in for frontline staff at the moment, we are succeeding in protecting them and that we will see similar rates of infection. That's my guess at the moment. We, we're just waiting to see the results of our study and other studies, um, uh, but this is what um, I, I, I expect and, of course, would like to see. What kind of processes can be taken to help staff already? I mean, we've seen a lot, of course, about uh, PPE and the kind of issues that are there, but there's also this idea of virus-free zones. Tell me a bit more about that. 
Yes, absolutely. And thank you for this question, because um, I think this is the time that we should be very careful with language um, and the semantics. Um, and I, I think because of the how serious this infection can be, I think everyone wants also a little bit of optimism. And I noticed that on the language front, we are we like using language that it brings a little bit of optimism. Uh, and I think I consider the immunity passports or the virus-free zones, um, I think, part of this observation, my observation, if you like. And, and I think this is the time we, we, we need to be very careful with this. Um, we at UCLA elected to use COVID-protected areas rather than free because I think um, we don't want to um, create false reassurance to patients entering the hospital or healthcare workers in the hospital and actually uh, try to be always vigilant to the measures we're taking in the healthcare facilities uh, in terms of the, the risk. And that's how I see that uh, panning out, so that we are looking at COVID-protected areas where we are actually trying our best, our maximal effort to keep that risk as low as possible. It will never be zero, but we have to do our best to keep it uh, as low as possible. Let me bring Professor Haywood back in again, because uh, I want to talk a bit about social distancing and how that is impacting the risk of infection. How would you go about, Andrew, measuring the impact of social distancing on the spread of the virus? Because I think this is part of Virus Watch, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I think, I guess there's a distinction here between the, the population level measures of social distancing that we've seen recently. And, and obviously, we've, we've had extreme social distancing amongst most groups uh, over the last few weeks. And, and we can see very clearly that, as expected, that has dramatically reduced the transmission of COVID. Um, so, you know, prior to those measures, we would expect every case to lead to two or three other cases. And since the introduction of those measures, we're now much closer to each case infecting one other case. And so that's what's led to the overall decrease uh, in transmission. I think the uh, when we want to try and get into a bit more detail of that, then we need to sort of understand, if you like, how individuals amount of social distancing and the amount that they're in contact with other people is related to their personal risk of infection. And so that's one of the things that we'll be measuring within the Virus Watch study, both through recording people's activities through more traditional diary-based mechanisms, but also for those who agree to install, a, if you like, a GPS tracker app on their mobile phone that allows us to measure directly where they're going and for how long, uh, for example, and, and, and we can annotate that data to look, for example, did they go to the supermarket? How long did they spend there? Had they been traveling on public transport? Uh, and you can make these inferences from knowing their GPS location at, a, at, a, at frequent intervals, which is what these apps now enable us to do. You mentioned, uh, Eleni, about immunity passports, and this is an idea that's had some currency, uh, and it's certainly been going around. But it's actually, I suspect, quite 
difficult to enact in uh, reality. What do you th- think about immunity passports? Yes, it is an area where we and others, of course, are trying to get um, tests up and running that will give us some certainties around uh, around that. There are difficulties uh, in serology. Uh, serology is not something we would routinely use in clinical virology for other respiratory viruses, and suddenly we have this task of coming up with um, as, as sensitive and specific assays to tell us more about this. I think the first step is to actually make sure that we give the right information at the right time uh, to patients and staff about this. Uh, so the first, very first step is to actually have an assay where you absolutely know the performance of, how sensitive it is, how specific it is, what a positive result means and what a negative result means. And Eleni, can I just interrupt and and ask you to explain exactly what's meant by sensitive, sensitivity and specificity? Because people aren't always sure what that means. Of course. I mean, it's actually the certainty that we have around the positive and negative results. Um, inferring on uh, on the patients or the staff's status, whether they had the infection or not. And actually measuring IgG antibodies um, is, which is what the serology is all about and the immunity passport, if you like. What, if positive, the only thing that this tells us, will tell us, is whether someone has been exposed to the virus or not. Then the next step is to actually say, the presence of these antibodies, will you will they protect you from reinfection if you're exposed again? And this is something that we need to see in due course as this um, infection and, 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 you know, the waves of the infection, infecting populations uh, will go on. And, and that's why studies like ours, I think, are very, very important. Virus Watch, you know, led by Andrew and Safer, because then we can longitudinally over time see the uh, antibody levels in the populations, in, in healthcare workers, and look at how likely is it then with a level, certain level of antibody to be reinfected. And then you can infer on immunity. I don't think that uh, a positive antibody test at the moment, uh, we're able to say that this will be protective of uh, reinfection. We can always, of course, from what we know from other respiratory infections and coronaviruses, say that it's likely that you're protected for a, a period of time. But what that period is, I think it's very difficult to say at the moment. And of course, we're in a catch-22 at the moment, aren't we? Because as, we, uh, as we're more and more successful with our social distancing and the rate of infection goes down, so we find it more and more difficult to know whether those who have antibodies are going to be protected against future infection because if the future infection isn't around in such large quantities then it will take them longer to be exposed to more new cases. That's absolutely right and I think this is so this is both a problem for assessing the protective effect of previous infection uh, and antibodies but it's also going to be a challenge when it comes to vaccine studies. So uh, the lowering incidence of disease makes that more challenging. I, I think we will see further waves of infection, and so we need to be prepared to uh, catch those waves from a research perspective. One of the things that we're doing in 
Virus Watch is, is really trying to get serological samples from the general population at the end of this wave of infection so that then over the summer uh, and maybe over the winter, if as we expect, COVID may start to transmit again more effectively, then we'll be able to relate those antibodies results to their risk of infection in the future. Now, Andrew, you've been up close and personal to respiratory disease all your academic life. How does coronavirus infection, how does COVID-19 compare to other respiratory infections that you've come across? I think this is really, I suppose, one of the things that got me interested in being involved in respiratory infections and particularly influenza was the 1918 pandemic and realising the huge impact of that on mortality in society and 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 therefore being involved, if you like, in pandemic preparedness exercises in case that happened. And of course, I think we often fell into the trap, I think, of thinking that this, uh, if this was to happen, it would be a flu type uh, of virus. And so the fact that it's a coronavirus is in, in some sense, unexpected. Of course, we've seen other coronaviruses cause very, very severe levels of illness, but we've not seen them spread efficiently uh, through the population. I think what this virus has is a, a, a really awful combination, if you like, of an appreciable, uh, a, a really quite appreciable mortality rate, particularly in vulnerable groups, and a, a very efficient way of spreading from human to human. And, and it's those two factors that really, uh, I think, early on made many of us very concerned about this, um, this problem. And, and those concerns have largely been realised. I want to close our discussion by coming to you both for a top piece of advice. So, Eleni, what key bit of advice or tip have you got? I think following um, the measures that were uh, that um, uh, that are are taken, I think that would be my my piece of advice. I think we all have to contribute in containing uh, this infection and the disease that it causes, and I think that would be my very top advice to actually all of us try and contribute to that and make sure that our fellow citizens and fellow colleagues uh, that are more vulnerable. Um, are protected. Um, I think that would be my main message. And the message about language. And the message about language. I'm on about it. Yeah, I think we all have to be careful a little bit about the language that we use and be quite more precise when we talk about uh, such important um, uh, issues for people. Well, we'll include President Trump in that too. On the day that we were recording, said that injecting bleach or disinfectant might be a good way to get rid of the virus. Andrew, what about you? Well, I think probably the most effective way of stopping this virus spreading is social distancing. And obviously there's a big trade-off between social distancing uh, and the the broader aspects of our livelihoods, economy, etc. We've got to find a way in which we can act as a society for an economy still to function with 
but with social distancing still in place. I think what's going to be particularly important is for those people who can just as easily work from home, and I think many of us are realising that that's much easier than one might have imagined, should continue to do that. And I think the other, my top piece of advice is really for those people who are most vulnerable with chronic diseases and and the elderly, I think we need to be particularly careful about uh, social interactions there. And I know this is a really uh, a really tough thing, but I think over the next months uh, and possibly longer, we're going to need to be very careful about protecting the most vulnerable. Andrew Hayward, Eleni Nastuli, thank you so much for coming to uh, our podcast studio today, our remote podcast studio, I should say. We're all in different parts of the country. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and edited by Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Andrew Hayward and Dr Eleni Nastuli. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon.